where you would build a thousand years ago would come alive in our hearts and our minds and bring clarity and conviction and stir us up to be more faithful. Lord, I do pray that you would help me and my voice and my lips and to think on purpose that you would give insight and understanding has a special place in my heart because it is through the book of Revelation that I actually became a Christian. I grew up in a small church in Minnesota, Minnesota Valley Baptist Convention. And this was a small liberal Presbyterian church. It was pretty easy. The fourth grade Sunday school teacher decided to teach us through the book of Revelation. So she thought fourth graders needed it. God bless that effort. I don't remember much from that, but I do remember having a very clear conviction that Christ was going to return, and I wanted to be on his side. So I do remember praying in the book of Revelation, that during that year, basically declaring that the Messiah would have to follow Christ and would be with him. Christians, and so that was my conviction, and I became deeply devoted to reading the Bible, started certainly studying Revelation, but reading Genesis, and would make my way through Genesis daily. Nobody asked me to do this, but I just had a heart to read the Word of God. Um, Whenever I had a book report assigned, I would do it if possible on one of the books of the Bible. immediate desire to want to share and to study and to understand. Um, you know, obviously I didn't understand everything, but I would say that I was immune from a lot of the crazy interpretations that were rampant in the 1980s regarding Revelation, what I call newspaper exegesis, sometimes what would be going on in Russia or in the Middle East, and they would find somewhere in the Bible to defend basically why it didn't happen. Um, so I, I wasn't exposed to that. It was just simply reading the Bible and realizing this is true, and uh, it has significance, and it will come to fruition for us. And so all I knew was what I read. And as I continued to mature, though, I would say my Christianity, or at least my understanding of Christianity, did not mature. It did not uh, take root. 
faithful Christian, and yet I struggled with a lot of uh, sin, not because I knew it was sin, but I actually would claim it wasn't a believer, because there was absolutely zero discipleship. Nobody was telling me how a Christian should live. I like to say that I was getting my discipleship from the television show. And that was about the height of discipleship that I had. So I really didn't know what it meant to follow Christ, except from what I was reading in my book. And so as I looked at other kids that were older than me, I tended just to take after their example. And that was what was pleasing to the Lord. And um, my point in sharing that is to, is to show that no matter how it about a person looks they're not a mistake in their life and they're all of their devotion is to Christ they're not shown how to live according to it they're not constrained by it they've been taught as I said in my book living a life that isn't pleasing to God and yet God infuriates them so people need to be taught what to scripture and pastor my life live by my love and I don't do this for attention I don't do it for money I might not do it for money twice a week like we've been doing if I wasn't freed up to do it but I would do it I feel a, a great weight that people in our church would learn the Bible as a military officer feels when he knows he's going to be sending his troops to war because this is not just believes they're following Christ that we've sworn to follow him and we've seen that Lord, Lord, did we not know you? Did we not do all these things that you told us to follow you? They never did because they never really understood so I'm eager to dive into the book of Revelation because of its impact on my life and I think a lot also just of the confusion surrounding it also because I think it is becoming increasingly more relevant that we have a clear concept of what the end of times will look like. And so as eager as I am to dive right into verse 1, um, I thought it'd be wise just to, to take a step back and give an overview, give some parameters, where are we going, what's the big deal. And uh, that's going to take some time. <laughs> and so it'll actually only take two Wednesdays to do that. And we'll, and we'll look at it next week, too. And I want to give this overview by uh, basically providing the who, what, where, when, why, how uh, of this book. And we'll start with the who. Uh, that is, who wrote the book and who was it written to? Um, there, there is also going to be a look at the where and when. Where was it wi- written and from? Where was it written from and when was it written? Why answers the question, what's the purpose of the book? If you go back home, we'll, um, then we'll look at the what. That is, what's, what's this book actually teach about the end times? And how does what's revealed in Revelation correspond with other um, eschatological, eschatological texts, other end times texts? So that we can hopefully come up with a chronology of what the end times will actually look like. 
And so because there's just so much to say, so much to cover, it, it will take a couple of weeks to get through this whole thing. Okay, so let's look at the who. Let's begin with the who. Uh, we know that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John because he actually says so four times. Three times at the very beginning of the book, and then once at the end in 22a. John, of course, was the author of the Gospel of John. He was the one who wrote the three epistles as well. So he actually wrote more books aside from Paul than the apostles. Uh, he was also the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. He was also likely the cousin of Jesus, based upon siblings that were second brothers in the verse written about in John 3. And John was also the last of the apostles to die. And he was the only apostle to escape martyrdom. When he wrote this text, all the other disciples were behind
time to date um, this letter. It could be a little bit before, it could be a little bit after, but probably what most scholars suggest is that this letter was written. Uh, and this date corresponds to the early witness of Eusebius, Herod's father, also Clement of Alexandria, Origen, um, and Irenaeus. And Irenaeus stated that the Apostle John, quote, saw the revelation at the close of Domitian's reign, when Domitian's reign ended in 63. And this, this time period also corresponds best with the, what we see going on in the letters to these churches that John is writing. Take a history of what we know about this city and read what John is actually saying here. The date of the later date of 97, AD 96, when this command was given. So, brings us to why. Why was the letter written? And what's its purpose? John actually makes his purpose explicit, both at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 1, and then at the end of the book in chapter 2, sorry, chapter 22, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 1, we'll, we'll look at it. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then he says at the end, chapter 26, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So twice, beginning and the end, he says, this is why I'm writing. It's so that you would know what is about to take place. It's going to take place in the future. What's the purpose? He's explaining it. Uh, in particular, what Revelation reveals, and this is no surprise to anybody who's read it, is that it reveals the coming judgment of God in fulfillment of all the promises that have been made in this covenant with Israel. He is fulfilling everything that he said would happen. And so many times in the scriptures, people will have them say a prayer such as, how long, Lord, will this have to go on? How, what about all these promises that you've made to Israel that have not come to fruition and continue to suffer and continue? We're not leading the world. We're not being blessed. There's no shalom. It's quite the opposite. We've been um, terrorized for 2,000 years. Christians can say a very similar thing. Why do so many evil people get away with their crimes and no vengeance? When is this vengeance going to take place? Well, it will take place in the time that has been described here in the book of Revelation, what the Old Testament will describe as the day of the Lord. So the book of Revelation really is an explanation, a full explanation of what the prophets, in particular the minor prophets, called day of the Lord, the wrath of God. Another word that's used is the tribulation, that that phrase comes from here in Revelation. Uh, In chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, John says that 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 in the day of the trumpet's call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced through the servants of the prophets. It's all about all the promises coming to fulfillment. In fact, all that tension that's seen in Revelation chapter 5, where nobody's found to open the scroll, and John begins to weep because nobody's found to open the scroll, the point there is the Lamb of God can open the scroll. The Lamb of God can bring to finality what was written on the scroll. What's written on the scroll? 
all the covenant promises, that God finally put an end to sin and darkness, that Christ can finally bring finality to God's covenant because he has died and he's risen again. And that is what St. John describes there in chapter uh, chapter 6. In chapter 1115, the 24 elders give thanks and sing this. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. You've begun to reign now. We're praising you for that. The nations raged, but your wrath came. It's an allusion to Psalm 2. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The, the point is, it's finally happening. It's finally coming to fruition. All the promises will now be fulfilled, realized. In chapter 15, John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God has begun. And so the book reveals the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises and those particularly to pour out his wrath upon all his enemies. And corresponding to this is another major purpose of the book, and that is the perseverance of the saints. Throughout the book, there are multiple calls to endurance, to perseverance. At the beginning of the book, John identifies himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's remarkable. He describes himself as one who is of the patient endurance, a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So many things could have said, but he wants to emphasize I know what it's like to patiently endure persecution. So in other words, I'm a a partner in this. I'm not just a patient. And he highlights both the coming tribulation described in Revelation and the need to endure during this time. Again, the assumption is that those in Christ will endure tribulation, the endurance, patient endurance that is in Jesus. If you're in Jesus... You know what it means to patiently endure because that's what it means. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Patience, endurance. And this is particularly emphasized, this this, uh, theme is emphasized in the letter to the seven churches that begin the book. Jesus tells the Ephesians, I want you guys to see this for yourself, Revelation 2, 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. So he commends them. You're doing well. And he lists another things that they've done well. He says in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. So many things that he could say, but this is what he commends. That's remarkable. Again, when Christ himself commends something, that should, that should garner our attention. That should open our eyes and think deeply. Pause for a second. That's what patient endurance means. He tells the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that theme of conquerors or overcomers 
outcome will be the defeating of Judah. It's, it's Isaac and this idea of endurance. Those who don't give up, those who don't throw in the towel, those who don't fall back into sin, those who don't cave to temptation, fall away. He tells the church in Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13, You who hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Then he says later in verse 17 to the same church, To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Right? So he's saying, follow the example of, of Antipas. Be faithful unto death. And you'll hear that exhortation again. Then Jesus commends the church in Thyatira. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He says this in verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works to the end, to him I'll give authority over all the nations, and they will rule them with a rod of iron. So you see again this connection. The one who conquers is the one who holds fast, who doesn't give up, who doesn't cave, who continues in their patient endurance. He tells the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 4, the one, or verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. He tells the church in Philadelphia, again, notice what he commends him for in verse 10 of chapter 3, because you've kept my word about patient endurance. It's like, man, you keep bringing this up, Jesus. This really must something very valuable to you. I will keep you, he says, from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Again, then he ties this in. The one who conquers, who holds fast, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven in my own new name. That's what we're called to. We have to patiently endure. You can't give up. And we need to hear this because we like to give up. We're pretty soft. It doesn't take much for us to just throw in the towel when it comes to temptation. Right? How many times we give in temptation and, and we need to, we come up with a list of excuses rather than just realizing how much we need it. How easy it is to just not push ourselves, to not exercise effort to do what we know is the right thing to do. And instead, just leave Jesus to give him to the wrong. Jesus tells the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers is the one I'll grant to sit with me on my throne. Isn't that amazing? follows it up as I conquered and sat down with my father's table. Christ is offering us a crown of loneliness. In chapter 5, uh, sorry, chapter 12, when Satan is depicted as being thrown out of heaven, the saints are, descri- are described this way at that time. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death how did they conquer 
doesn't mean expect your best life now. Satan's been granted freedom in verse chapter 13, verse 7 of chapter 13, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And then there's this prophetical verse in verse 14. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And then it says, here's a call to the endurance of the unfaithful. going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. I'm calling you to endure. If the point of revelation, the primary application of revelation, is to recognize we need to endure and not give up. None of this is, should be a surprise. None of this should be a shock. It's going to be shocking. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be highly unpleasant. But we need to endure. And this call is repeated again in chapter 14, verse 12 right before the the judgments are revealed. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I want it's not just holding fast to your faith, it's keeping the commandments. And we're going to see this strong contrast between those who follow the ways of the world and those who keep themselves pure and obey God. And there's not a mishmash. It's one or the other. One is going to allow you to live in luxury and, and great wealth. The other, but it's going to cut you off from the crown of life. The other is going to lead to suffering, death, great unpleasantness. But there's an, an immense reward if anyone is true to the Lord. So in summary, the purpose of Revelation is to describe the coming wrath of God and to encourage the saints to persevere brings us to the what. And we get the primary application of Revelation uh, really from the letters to the seven churches and the major themes that are developed in the book and, and the correspondence that goes towards the theme there. So we just examined the need for the perseverance in our faith. That was one of the major themes. But here's some of the other major themes that stand out. We'll start first with the call to purity versus sexual immorality. I was stunned by how many people this came up about throughout the book. Not just in one or two verses, but it's like a major theme. And it's the primary tension between unbelievers and believers. How how they respond to the temptation to sexual immorality. And Jesus has to call this out in the churches as well. So he calls it out in the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2, verse 13, notice this. A few things against you, and one of those things is um, you tolerate those who practice sexual immorality. And he even says the Nicolaitans, you know, those who are known for practicing sexual immorality. You get to the theological justification. You tolerate it. He's not saying you are in the midst of it, but you're tolerating. You're not dealing with it. You're not calling it out as sin. You've accepted it. It's just fun. It's just the way people are. chapter 2, verse 20 says this from the church in Thyatira. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her sins. And I will strike her children dead. And all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your deeds. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not missing any of this. I see all of this that's happening. And I'll deal with it. I will deal with sexual immorality within the church. And again... There are so many things I'm sure that Jesus could assess, and this is one that he particularly highlights. And I, I, it strikes me because I think all the more in our day, sexual immorality is seen in things we call it. It's not only in our culture and almost worshipped in our culture, especially here in that last month and year. It should not be named sin. One of the things that distinguishes saints and unbelievers is purity, particularly regarding sexual purity. Later in chapter 9, during the trumpet judgment, John lists the sins men steadfastly refused to repent of. He says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders and sorcerers or their sexual immorality or their thieving. Chapter 14, the saints coming out of the tribulation, though, are described this way. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God of the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie, for they are found blameless. So you see a direct contrast between those who will not repent and then those who are faithful. They're blameless. Regarding what comes out of their mouth, their sexual fidelity. And you contrast this with the way Babylon is described just a few verses later. Revelation 14.8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, so many things that you could say about the evil in the world, and this is what he calls out. This is a big deal to God. We need to remember, God made sex. He created it. He said the, the, the very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. So it's not, it's not the reality of sex, it's the distortion of it. He hates any sexual act, any sexual thought outside of marriage. Anything outside of marriage, any sexual thought or act is sexual immorality. It should not be named among the saints. 
gives another similar description of Babylon in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. The angel with seven bowls said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And this is stunning, what he says next. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Yeah, they don't, they're so immersed in it they can't even and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality and on her forehead was written the name of mystery Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations and then verses 7 and 2 and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Christ those who commit sexual immorality are thrown in same camp as those who kill the innocent. That's what you're in league with. So I just want to make, let's be really clear. There is, there should be no inkling of sexual sexual immorality in this passage. Is the temptation going to be out there? Yes. Are people going to fail? Yes. And we need to forgive and we need to restore. is used for the Babylon, the, the whore of Babylon's indictment in chapter 18. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality. And notice right after this indictment, another angel issues the command to the saints in light of it. This is Revelation 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God is remembered in iniquity. Do whatever you Cut yourself up. Flee Babylon. And we'll talk later about what Babylon is referring to, but he's saying, have nothing to do with her and her sexual immorality. And the book ends by calling out sexual immorality as being one of the elements that prevent people from entering the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gate. 22.15 Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices sorcery. And I think that the sexuality of our culture is just, again, one of the reasons uh, I think the end is coming really soon. And it's, it's exponentially getting worse. I mean, I never thought we would see what we're seeing promoted even in our own city, in our own in the White House lawn. I mean, it's getting bad. And it's so prolific, even churches are celebrating sexual immorality. And again, even good churches 
of sexual immorality is called out as sin. Those people in the pews are immersed in it. And there's a lot of people who are not just looking at pornography, but addicted to it. sexual sin as an acceptable element in entertainment. And music? Of course. Movies and TV shows. Instead of having a, a response of, I can't no longer engage in this anymore. What else? Our greatest hits are still there. And when you align that with, we can't have any kids here. Same with gender. We can slaughter kids for that. What we do see is that Christians can't see it because they're drunk on it. That doesn't mean, again, we ignore meme or rude, but we need to acknowledge the truth about what the Bible actually teaches about sexual immorality. I encourage you to uh, repent and find freedom in that. And this point is made very clear throughout the Bible, especially in Revelation, that true sanctity comes by truth. First Corinthians 6. Says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sex homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't commit sexual morality and expect to inherit the kingdom of God, amongst other sins. can repent and be restored. So we need to seek this out. Paul says this in Ephesians 5. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And he, he expands on that. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude jesting which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving Sexual morality can come out in the way we worship. Now you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. I promise you this morning, if you're engaging in sexual immorality, you're putting your faith in Jesus. That's the truth. You judge a tree by its fruit. So this is not just a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and death. This is really serious. Heaven and hell, paradise and damnation are related. You're choosing one or the other. So what must we do? I'm sure the church, seven churches that were given this warning from Christ, were probably asking, what do we need to do? Well, Jesus told us exactly what to do on the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. 
for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So we need to remove whatever stumbling blocks are there. That may mean getting rid of your smartphone. certain web, they're just like news sites. I will not go to them. I, the articles that they have, conservative news sites, I just won't read the news from those websites anymore. There's no reason for those articles. You just need to take your read blood earnestly. <laughs> Revelation, you can't read that, but we, all those verses we just read and say, oh yeah, I agree with that. Unless you're believe that the creature prefers death to soiling its fur. According to one medieval historian, an ermine falling into a mud puddle would immediately die of poison. And of course, it's a myth. There's other myths, but they carry the point. One myth is that hunters secretly caught ermine simply by smearing mud around their den because they would be so afraid to go in the den, they wouldn't enter it, and when their hounds came upon them, they would just rather lay there and want to get eaten by the hounds than